found a world outside of time, before everything became the same. I took those thousand ways to be different and put them here for you. So reads the haiku-like embellishment that Kevin Kelly leaves at the gates of his new three-volume photography collection, Vanishing Asia. Kevin is a technologist, an evangelist of protopian incremental iterated improvements. His studies of technology have convinced him, as he has articulated in books like Out of Control and What Technology Wants, that our tools have an agency in life of their own, and that what he calls the technium is a life form in its own right, with its own evolutionary agenda, and that its agenda is our agenda, ultimately, and by turning into the swerve, we can each and all contribute to this great unfolding. I'm not out of line talking about it in religious terms, because as he admits himself in this episode, religion has not left the modern era, and in fact, the modern era has a religion of its own, a religion of improvement and of wonder. But while I completely agree with the thermodynamic rationale behind this vision of a kind of avalanche of information technology stretching back to the dawn of life and ever accelerating getting to know oneself. I nonetheless find Kelly's latest project, this collection of images of a continent lost not to distance, but to time, a very fertile place to plant a conversation about the meaning of change and loss inherent in the creative destruction of progress. So that's what we're in for today. I appreciated the sincerity with which Kevin took all of my questions. And so as a kind of love letter to the Long Now Foundation, one of this podcast's major inspirations and an organization on which Kevin sits as co-chair of the board. Shout out to all the good people at Long Now. I bring you this conversation the way I would bring you a hearty glass of red wine to enjoy with some lab-grown steak. Or perhaps more well-suited to the content of this conversation, the spirit of a bygone Asia rises up through the asanas of our discussion and into the great choir of planetary sense-making in which this podcast is but a thread. Speaking of which, this podcast is a physical thing, in a sense. It's an organism. It has a metabolism. It has clay feet, and those clay feet are mine. If you like this show and you want to see it live, please join me over on Patreon as a supporter. Chip in a few dollars a month and suddenly find yourself in the company of wonderful and strange people with whom you can indulge in deep, fascinating book club discussions, organize history-shifting shenanigans, and who knows what else. Special thanks to the latest to enter, E. Sorrell and Miriam King. I don't remember which one of you was the 200th supporter, but we have finally 
reached the magic number. A mathematically perfect and yet arbitrary goal has been achieved. So the next goal is going to be real and, and substantive. I really, really want to hire editors for this show so that I can spend time with my family and continue making other things for you. My friend Mitch Mignano helped edit this episode. My wife, Nicole, is helping edit other episodes you'll hear soon. If you want these people to get paid, then go to Patreon because that's how I'm going to do it. Thank you. All right. Enjoy. This was a delicious conversation with Kevin Kelly, whom I thank very much for agreeing to be on the show a second time. And thank you very much for listening. Kevin Kelly, it's a pleasure to have you back on Future Fossils for what I imagine will be a very different conversation than our first. My pleasure. It's always a joy talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. So we're here today to talk about a book that, as I, I just alluded to, is really substantively different from what most people are probably familiar to in your your books, your writing. This uh, Vanishing Asia, a, a, a really beautiful a three-volume photo journey through a lost world. And I think maybe the right place to start is with covering some of the ground that you cover in your notes in the book about the origin of this project and the lifelong romance that you've had with Asia and its people. Yeah. So to kind of start at the end, this is a huge, almost 50-year project in recording scenes from a vanishing Asia. And that Asia is, I define, the continent between Turkey and Japan and everything in between. So it's a very big place. And I have been documenting the traditions and ceremonies and costumes and everything else that's been disappearing from this ancient land into a single book that has over a thousand pages and has 9,000 images. And it's just humongous. I sent a sampler out, which was 50 pages. And there is 1,030 more pages like that. So it's, it's like, it's just a very, very vast, almost as big as Asia. And that's the, the project. And I'm kickstarting it right now to have printed into this huge set, which weighs 27 pounds. It's just a mammoth undertaking. So that's where I've ended. I began just as a kid out of high school, really, who was living in a land that is sort of very foreign to us now. It's very hard to describe how parochial and non-cosmopolitan the United States was when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, never having encountered Chinese people never holding chopsticks, never eating Chinese food in my life, having only been to a restaurant three times before I graduated from high school. And I set out an invitation of a friend to go to Taiwan and Japan with no idea what was there. There was, I mean, National Geographic maybe might have given you some clue if you did your research, but I really didn't have any idea what I was going into, what I was doing. 
I wanted to photograph there, but I didn't know what that meant. So this destination of the book was was not in my mind at all at the time. For me, it was sort of an alternative to college. And it absolutely opened my mind, if not, you know, whacked my mind in, in many ways that, I, you know, I, I didn't foresee at all. And it was such an exhilarating experience that I kind of had to keep coming back and going more and further. And as I did, I began to get a little bit of an idea of this project because I could see within my own experience, within my own lifetime, within my own visits, how fast this was changing, this Asia was changing, how fast it was disappearing right before my eyes. I would literally be at some rice patties and come back a few years later and they were gone and there was a, you know, there's a factory set up and then next there was like a mall. So the idea of kind of doing this more seriously became something that I gradually accumulated over time. So, yeah, I was going to say the spirit in which this book is is presented, you hold an interesting balance, I think. You're clear in this that you don't grieve it entirely, but you recognize the importance of of preserving a cultural memory of this place. You talk about how in the era of your visits, a billion Asians bought a one-way bus ticket from their picturesque village and moved to a grimy city, and that they did so, and you've said this elsewhere, that this is motivated by the increasing menu of choice, the, the opportunity presented by metropolitan life, and that this is a, a ratcheting process. Global urbanization is not something that at the individual level that almost any person would decide, you know, I want to go back and, you know, get lung cancer from a wood stove in my, my nailless hut, lose access to medical services and all of this. But, you know, it speaks to something I know you've given a lot of thought about in your career, which is this term creative destruction. You know, Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter talks about this, about the way that modernization and in general innovation uses as fuel or displaces uh, that which came before. And so, you know, as someone who has not had the opportunity to travel Asia like you have, but who worked for years as a herpetological illustrator, and I asked my boss, the curator at the University of Kansas Natural History Museum, about how he felt about gassing all of these animals out of trees and, and killing them all, bringing all these creatures back to the States to describe them for science, you know, didn't he feel conflicted about this? And he said, we were three days ahead of the bulldozers, <laughs> you know, that the, yeah. that the KU's National Biodiversity Research Center is in large part, not about cataloging the biodiversity of a world that is, but a world that was. Right. And so I'm curious about how you hold this paradox and this contradiction what it means for you. Right. I think one of the things that the book will feature, will carry, is the incredible beauty of these solutions. I call these design solutions. The ways in which people around the world and other places have come up with the solutions that we must have of how do we get food, how do we build our shelter, how do we clothe ourselves, and how do we celebrate landmarks in our year and all these kinds of things. And there's a beauty in the solutions, like any kind of highly evolved things that have beauty. 
and I, and I think I, I was able to capture that. So, so I do appreciate their beauty, but there's a cost to all these. And you kind of mentioned in a little bit that, and, and there's always a cost. Every, every single solution that we have, including the solutions that we're making today, have costs. They all have costs. There's never a costless innovation. And, and those costs might be in what we lose or displace, but there can be other costs associated with. So the costs of a lot of the beautiful dress that the woman wears was that it was very inhibiting, that it was a kind of possession by the males. There's just so many other attributes of these culture that, that, that part of the reasons why they're disappearing is because people don't want to pay those costs anymore. And some of the other things that they, they would rather have, those things, those choices have costs. If you're going to live in a concrete box with Wi-Fi, that has a cost. Most people are kind of calculating that they are going to pay the cost because they really want that Wi-Fi. And so what it is, is that those other solutions are harder and harder to sustain. They won't disappear entirely because some people will find them valuable. We'll find other ways to subsidize the cost. So that, I mean, for instance, when the, most beautiful things, I think, are some of these valleys in North Vietnam, Southern China, parts of the Philippines that are terraced, or even Nepal. It looks gorgeous. It's just striking, and they're producing food. But the manual labor required to keep them up is incredibly large and vast. And over time, you can't support this by selling crops at market value. They could be supported in other ways. Maybe governments decide that that their beauty is such that they're willing to subsidize them. Okay, so that's another way of that cost being paid. So in general, all the things that we do have costs. And the cost of some of these old ways um, don't make sense for most people. So they're going to be abandoned in large part. And they won't become the dominant thing. They'll become much more rare. In my experience, nothing ever disappears completely. I, I did research on this to show that the, there's no technology that has completely gone extinct on the planet. Somebody somewhere will continue to make it new. You know, blacksmithing is very popular right now in a kind of craftsman way because of its inefficiencies, because of the fact that it's imperfect. People were making steel, you know, things by steel by hand for the beauty alone. So they will pay a lot of money for that, the imperfection that, that the modern technology has wanted to eliminate. But most of the steel in the world is not going to be made by hand. Some of these, some of these things are going to become very, very, very rare. Um, others will become so rare that most people won't ever see them. But Despite that, I believe that these things have a value to us as design solutions, that they can still be valuable if we know about them, because they offer an alternative way of thinking about things. They offer an alternative solution that can come back, not maybe that particular thing, but some version of it. And so so I think of this huge book as a kind of a catalog of otherness, of other alternative ways of doing things that may not make sense as a dominant way anymore, but 
can inspire or provoke or in some way suggest solutions for future problems. Like for me, a standard hope is I had the experience and tried to document what life is like in a pedestrian city, in a city without vehicles, which was the norm even in my experience um, in many parts of Asia in the early 70s. And I think that we could come back to build at least parts of cities that were entirely pedestrian. And so some of the solutions that were devised then might be relevant in the future pedestrian city. And so that's an example of what I mean by these alternatives not making economic sense anymore, but still might be valuable in a design sense. Yeah, so there's there's two kind of subcategories to to that that I'd like to dig into. One is I remember you talking about this, about your your research into the history of technology. You wrote about this in, in what technology wants and you talked about the persistence of the plow and all of these things. And you know, I was reminded of that in reading the sample of this book where you mentioned that you you had a rule of thumb that allowed you to measure how far removed from the modern world you were as mm -hmm. you got deeper and deeper into these pre-modern communities, which was to look around and count how much metal they were using, which I think as someone trained as a paleontologist, and I think a lot about the biases in preservation of the fossil record, right? It's extremely rare to find uh, soft-bodied organisms in the sedimentary record. And so, you know, I wonder in passing, although I think there's a deeper point that I want to touch on to, to, with what you just said, mm -hmm. but I wonder in passing whether you accounted for the possibility of the preservation bias in deep prehistory in your accounting of whether we have actually managed to retain all of our technologies that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in the pre-metal world that we, how would we even know that we lost it? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. There could be technologies that we are so ignorant of that we didn't even know that we had and we lost. So particularly in pre prehistory in terms of before writing, I, I think I'm confident that that is probably very unlikely because a lot of the technology between that was discovered prehistory and beginning of history didn't change that much. Secondly, most inventions were, were um, particularly the early inventions, were invented and reinvented many times. There was not a single origin. And so, so the fact that we might have a technology that was invented only once in the past and then kind of disappeared before history, it's possible, of course, but we have no evidence of it. So what can I say? <laughs> it is possible. There's a greater yeah. than zero chance. Right. I mean, you know, I think I think in the broader sense that you use technology, I think also about like cultural practices or psychological techniques. And that calls to, again, not to like dwell on this, but when I asked the listeners of this show if they had any questions to offer you, one of them came from my co-host, Naomi Most, who is the, uh, you may know her. She's an organizer at the Noise Bridge collective in San Francisco. And she was asking about how citing Terrence McKenna and his reference to the process of enculturation, religion, governance, and media as the hollowing out of interiority. For instance, I think the example that she gave was 
in training AI, when AI lacks the resolution, the granularity to give us the kind of intelligent results that we want, we don't blame AI. We blame our training models and our training data. And so we say, oh, let's resolve this more. And so it's this process of giving ever more granular access and a kind of ratcheting co-evolutionary adaptation between human and machine in which more and more of the human cognitive space is outboarded, right? And so like the brain case is smaller than it was 50,000 years ago. And so I think she was just curious to know kind of, you know, what you think about maybe to anchor this in, in your book, there may be a link between that question and what you see ubiquitously in pre-modern Asia. You see rich religious tradition and, and religious work. And it's clear that the, the ornamentation of that world corresponds to this, this cosmology that is abandoned along with all of the other inefficiencies in our movement into brutalist modern spaces. Do you think that we're hollowing out our minds in this process? And if not, in what way are we retaining that richness? Where is it going? I'm not 100% sure I understand the, the question of hollowing out, but I, I would say to the extent that I do, I would say that I, I believe that our minds and the culture and our cultures are becoming more and more complex over time, that there is definitely an arc towards more complexity and more richness in our intellect and in our spiritual. So I believe that we have had moral progress through time, that we actually are becoming more moral, more ethical over time, that we've developed, that that's something we're passing on culturally, our expectation that we teach each other. And maybe our brains are changing too. That's much harder to, to quantify. The religious component, you're absolutely right that Asia, traditional societies of all types, their worldview was a very seamless worldview in the sense that their concept of where they came from and their place in the world was manifest in all that they did. Okay, so the art and culture all kind of was hooked together. They, they, they were linked, they were connected together. And we might lament and say, well, we don't have that anymore because we're not religious, but it's quite the opposite. We have cosmology just as much, but it's not traditional cosmology. And for most people, the cosmology is almost like science fiction. It's kind of like Star Wars. There's alternative galaxies. Science fiction is the theology of our day. It does all the things that theology used to. We, we, we have a cosmology in the sense of, uh, of our place, but it's a non-traditional one and it's, it's actually cosmic in the sense of most people kind of intuitively accept the idea that there are other planets with with people on them even though nobody can prove it we accept star wars we accept star trek as of course and so we have a cosmology and we have a science world that is our religion we accept the idea. I accept the idea of an atom, even though I have never actually seen an atom. And I would be very difficult for me as an individual to prove that an atom existed. 
I might be able to reconstruct something, but it'd be really hard. So I, on faith, am taking the fact that light has a, a limited fixed speed. All right, that's a that's a that's a religious concept in a certain sense. It's a it's a religion based on the fact that we want to change our mind, but nonetheless, it is a. I'm taking that on faith to a certain extent. And I and I accept it because there's so many other things around it that are accepted, and because I trust the system. And so I would say that I think our minds, our culture is becoming even richer because we now have this plus the old religions all mixed together, and that our interior is actually filling out and richer than it ever was before. So that's related to the second sub question I had for you about trying to capture all of this on record so as to kind of provide a reservoir for innovation, design archives. You mentioned in this book, you say, I had a compulsion to find all the places in Asia with remnants of tradition. It was almost like an addiction because there is no economic reason for me to do this, nor is there a visible demand for it. No one is tweeting they need more traditional costume or scenes of bygone life. Now, that's funny because this is this is related to a question that I've I've been asking everyone I can. You know, it's 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 come up in the thinking that drinking from the fire hose of research at the Santa Fe Institute has forced me into, which is about how our economic models and our value systems actually work, like what it is that the economy, what kinds of value the economy is actually capturing or capable of seeing and what kinds it's not. Like famously, interdisciplinary research until very recently had no measurable value, you know, that it was, I remember in college being told straight faced, like you will not get to study an interdisciplinary question in grad school. There will be no funding for you. And it's generally true, I think, of pioneers that they are obligated to establish the value that they find in the frontiers that they explore. This is uh, also part of the question about, you know, what it is that you're doing with folks at Long Now, right? Which is, how do we know what the future is going to find valuable? Are we accidentally undermining ourselves metaphorically or literally by, you know, like all of the mountaintop removal mining that was done before we realized the value of a living forest, you know, before we realized ecosystem services. And so it's just strange to me, and I'd love to hear you comment on this, that I think you make an accurate point, which is that in probably, in my opinion, because of the convenience and the choice afforded to us by economies of scale and the thrill, the pace, and the sort of, in some respects, the street level myopia required by adapting to the the rapid pace. This is sort of to the question I was saying earlier about like the lost emotional richness that comes with trying to adapt to the six available Facebook reacts. We have to communicate our feelings with one another. There's a very real risk that we no longer know how to talk about the feelings that we once did. And so I'm I'm curious, just from an economic perspective, how you think, you know, is there a way that the, the system can start aggregating 
this kind of information over longer timescales and that our institutions and our markets can start making wiser decisions about these kinds of things, can start recognizing the value that a, you know, a, uh, like a, this like optimization algorithm that we've been following in the modern world has neglected. Yeah. Well, you have, there's lots of subjects you brought up and I'm trying to think of the easiest one to start with. I would, I would say just in general about economics. And, and that is, is that I think our understanding of economics is still very, very primitive. We're still in the very early days. And one of the things that we realize now is that our current formulations of the economic world are still incredibly narrow and that we are widening what we pay attention to and what we're able to actually quantify in, in, in our in our religion, which is the religion of quantification and measurement. And so famously, economics was not at all accounting for the subsidy that nature was providing. And this is, for me, one of the insights from the Santa Fe Institute and things like the Biosphere 2 project, which is um, if you are forced to actually pay for oxygen and clean water and all these and all these other things, it becomes ridiculously uh, expensive and it doesn't make sense. But but we're getting those free and yet we're not really counting for the inadvertent costs and the network effects and, and things like that. And by the way, network externalities were originally negative in the sense of costs that nobody was paying directly. And so so that's one thing, you know, things like women's labor at home, the housewife was not being, all that labor was not being accounted into the economy, yet it was really important. So there's, there are ways in which we kind of become aware of our ignorance and we begin to try and figure out how to account for those. And I think, again, we're just at the very beginning of that long, long process where we're going to realize, oh my gosh, we have not been accounting for this. So the fact that we don't right now doesn't mean that the system itself is incorrect. It means that it's just embryonic. So yes, so we want to figure out what we're missing and add to it. Sometimes that may require a reconception. I believe that there's lots of kind of assumptions that we have that probably aren't true that we have to reconceive. But yes, so let's, we'll do this one at a time. We're in no ways, is this any level of the final history or, you know, the final thing. So that's one thing. Generally, ec the economic discipline is still embryonic. And one of the things that Santa Fe Institute was trying to do was to move it forward by combining it with what we know in physics and biology, et cetera. When we think about long-term things, we, we want to kind of divide two different perspectives. There's long-term planning and there's a long-term perspective. So, Long-term planning is what we don't want to do because there you are kind of hindering future generations from their options. What we want to do with long-term thinking is you want to kind of, we want to ensure that future generations have more choices than we have. And that's what we're doing. They're going to make the choice about that in the future. We want to make sure that they have that power to decide themselves and so it's not like we're going to make, we're going to 
decide for the future generations. We want to, being a good ancestor means that you are passing on more choices to your descendants than you have. I think that's what we want to do with the economy. And that's, that's one of the reasons, that's what we get from new technologies is that we get more choices that we can pass on. If this new technology decreases choices, eliminates things, constrains, constricts, okay, that's not good. But if it increases occupation, so uh, as far as I can tell, it's increasing the number of occupations and that in five years from now, there will be students who are going to have doing things that we don't even have a name for right now. And you were talking before about interdiscipline stuff and the culture moves into the place where we don't have language, we don't have names, we don't have words, we don't have systems, we don't have funding. That's the nature of a frontier. And forever now, until the next million years, this will be true, that there'll be difficulty at the edges, that people at the edges where the, all the breakthroughs come from will be struggling. Because if it was simply, if you could gain these things with money, then all the billionaires and all the big companies would always have the, a monopoly on innovation. But they don't. Because money and resources don't solve the new problems. They have to come out of that struggle of having no resources that forces that ingenuity, that forces that rethinking. If you have too many resources, you're not forced. You're going to try and buy a solution. You're going to try and fund it. And so my view of the world, and this is always why I'm not so worried about big monolithic companies, because their monopoly is always very, very temporary. They are trying to buy their way, their solutions. And the next new thing is going to come up on the edge where there is nothing. It's very low profits. It's a horrible place to do business. There's a high failure rate. Who in their right mind would ever want to be there? Well, only the desperate, only the truly ambitious, only someone obsessed is going to be there. And that's where the new things are going to come from. Yeah, I remember hearing you issue a kind of similar critique of tech monopolies on Review the Future podcast a few years ago. That We're at a point now where we've reached a phase transition. And yes, it's like in some way easier to create one, but harder to make it last, which I think speaks to a related question that I'm curious to hear you talk about, which is the value of forgetting. Because yeah, I, I think a lot about this research. There was an article I'll link to in the show notes from Quantum Magazine covering a paper, George Washington University team that was studying network cognition. And what they found was, say, like if the individuals in a given society have memory that is above a threshold, that they become an overfit machine learning algorithm they become inflexible and the network itself becomes inflexible. It becomes difficult to adapt and that forgetting at the individual level is essential. And I guess this kind of speaks again to like, as we've become as society and the externalization of memory and cognition has scaled and you don't have to remember everything. You can just Google things now. And so the technological milieu has shifted priorities. It, certainly like in, in my generation, I feel like it's become much more important to just know how to find information than to try and remember it all. 
And so that gets to how you square the circle of the importance of remembering and the importance of forgetting. And whether, given your thesis on the persistence of technological innovation, you know, how this looks at multiple different scales, like individuals, institutions, and societies, like where does it make sense to allocate memory in order to, to optimize for a freer future? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of history, and I wish my memory was actually better than it is. So I'm not really concerned about us forgetting because I think it's a very natural. I don't think we have to encourage that because I think we do it so well already. We tend to forget history to our disadvantage. But I do believe in the value of asking questions versus having answers. And having answers is what we are getting with AI and technology is we can have the answer to things. They become cheap, abundant, ubiquitous. If you want an answer, you ask a machine. Alexa, what's two times two? Two times two is four. So why should I ever remember that, right? So they're going to answer more and more of our questions. So we don't have to remember it ourselves. As you say, we can have answers. But what becomes valuable over time is questions, asking a good question. And the power of questions is still being developed, but a good question we can define. And I have tried to define what a good question is, but I think that people will be hired not on the answers they have, but on how well they ask questions and what kind of questions they're asking. Because that is the thing that currently machines don't do very well. Okay. One of the things about asking questions is this is highly inefficient. And what we know about machines is that we can always optimize them. And they're very good at optimization. But it's very hard to kind of optimize questions because it is, by nature, an inefficient process. And it's also going into the unknown. And, and we don't really have ways to optimize the unknown at all. We, we optimize the known. We figure out how to do something, and then we optimize it. That's sort of what we've been doing. And what we're doing, what we're finding out is we can even optimize things that are conceptual in our brain. So that's the AI is that we're going to take things that we kind of want done or know how to do or know what we want, and then we're going to optimize it. And the AI is going to be fantastic with that. Where it's a little harder to imagine the optimization is where we don't know what we want. When we're trying to do something that is completely going somewhere new, where it's discovery, where it's that kind of creativity, and there's many kinds of creativity. And there, so far, AIs, and I always use the plural, are, have not been as effective, although we will even partner with them because we will use them to help us be inefficient, even though they are going to be optimized for that. So I think we're moving away from where answers are valuable to where they become cheap and ubiquitous to where the value is in asking good questions. I mean, certainly you see that on display in the splintering ontologies. Like I was just having a conversation in the Future Fossils Facebook group with somebody who was laying on the dinosaurs could only have grown so large if gravity was different back then, sure. you know, and then the, you get into the arguments and they're so Baroque and they've got physics equations. And it's just like, how, how do most people even begin to navigate 
the questions like this about the complex world that we have awoken into without, like, it, it really is this, you know, how do you even know how to evaluate one expert against another without a refinement of the tools of inquiry? Perhaps you wish to speak on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about our religion is that we take facts as interim, that it's a progressive kind of knowledge. But as, as, as and this is the beauty of it, as a fact becomes tied to more and more other facts, it becomes a bigger and bigger challenge to change that. So it is always possible that we have to recalculate the whole thing. I always think of that moment in the second Star Wars movie where Darth Vader reveals that he's Luke's father and you have to kind of like suddenly recalculate the entire first movie. Um, so, so, so that, that's what, you know, that's what happened with say like, you know, in geology with the continental drift theory, when it was accepted finally that continents were moving around at the Africa and South America fit together. There was this like, we have to recalculate the entire study of geology and, and think about what that means. And so that happens occasionally, but it's, it's more important. And, and to me, what, what the, the religion of science is about is it says that you can have weird anomalous findings, you know, how do dinosaurs get so big, but any explanation of it has to fit in with everything else that we already know. That's the difficulty or that's the challenge as we go along is that it has to fit into with everything else. And that, that process of fitting it all together, confirming with everyone else, having that fact linked in with gravity and the history of the planet and stuff like that becomes, it becomes conservative in a good sense, because in order to make it part of the science, it has to agree with everything else that we know in science to the date which means that it's harder to reform. It's harder to change the mind. It's a bigger challenge to really upset things. So I think it's a marvelous system and it is conservative, but it's still possible to change. And I think one of the things, I, I wrote one of the first pieces on the history of the scientific method, which still has no real book written about it, despite the fact that it's the single most important invention that we've ever made and has changed drastically in recent century. And I believe the scientific method will change even more in the next hundred years. And part of that change will be how we know things and AI will be part of that. And the collaboration tools that we're making and these issues of how do we trust, how do we know things are part of how we're going to change the scientific method itself is how do we agree on what it is that we accept? So that process is part of the scientific method. And the scientific method has been evolving very fast and will continue to evolve very fast. To that point, I'm just remembering Carnegie Mellon, SFI external professor Simon DeDeo just co-authored a piece breaking down Bayes' theorem to explain how different people come to different interpretations of what is a, a satisfying explanation. And that this relies on different definitions of a satisfyingly simple explanation, that consilience is one thing and parsimony is another, and that people fall into a trap where 
they apply only one heuristic to the world. And that's how you end up with these conspiracy theories, because you assume, for instance, oh, there's no way that Timothy McVeigh could have been the Oklahoma City bomber because someone brilliant enough to carry off that kind of an attack would not have been so dumb to have been arrested speeding without license plates and a loaded gun on the seat next to him the next day. And that there's this issue where all of us with our different experiences have different priors. We come in with different expectations about the world. And, you know, I saw in that paper an argument, almost like a uh, U.S. founding father's kind of argument for checks and balances in a pluralism of approaches. And that the future of science seems more like a William James kind of plural space that we're not we're not looking in this world anymore for like a a single grand unifying theory or or approach and that again speaks to your drive to seek out these pockets of cultural uniqueness i wanted to make sure that we get to a piece that you mentioned in this book on how you noticed culture changing, how you noticed these ponds drying up. And you mentioned that there was a a secession in which people lost costume and then architecture and then music and then food and then language. And I think this is really interesting just in terms of how we might think about cultural transformation, not only from pre-modernity to modernity, but how cyber culture might change the world that we live in now. And then like, I'd be curious to hear a bit about your experience with that in your travels, and then also for you to maybe speculate forward into how that's going to create a sort of patchwork of unevenly distributed futures in the 10, 20, 50 years to come. Yeah. I think I'm going to go through the, the, the observation about the existing cultures as they transition to modern, they tend to, yeah, as you, as you say, my observation is they tend to lose costume first, architecture next, you know, languages, and music. Food seems to be the one thing that people will often retain, even if they've lost all these others. I have no idea whether anthropology would agree with that, whether there's any, I haven't looked and see whether there's any data on that, but that's my observation. But the one thing in my photography in this book, Vanishing Asia, I would often seek out those areas that still had costumes because they would have everything else. And so I would spend a lot of time trying to get to these areas where people have retained costume because they're going to retain the rest of the culture. But they were changing fast because one of the, the, the other observations about Asia is that it's actually the future. Some of the urban areas in, say, China, Tokyo, or Japan are more modern than our cities in the West. And it's very clear to me that the coming century is going to be an Asian century in the broadest sense. And while the West has been very paternalistic in thinking that cultures of the East are just copy cultures, there's no true innovation, blah, blah, blah. This is all terribly wrong. And we're going to see in the coming decades, true innovation come out of China. We're going to see true cultural phenomena, music, movies that people want to see around the world and sooner than later a product like say an electric car of some sort that is beautiful and everybody in the world wants to buy one because it's the best thing there is and that will kind of be some of the sign that what's happening in china is that it's undergoing an immigrant 
culture energy that like the u.s had but most of the immigration is all internal people from different parts of china migrating into cities they don't speak the same language uh, at home and they're having the same kind of hybrid vigor that we the america saw when we had immigrants from all over the world different countries mixing together that's happening now in china and because of that i think we're at the beginning of a kind of energy and uh, shift in the cultural gravity to the East, to to Asia. And we aren't prepared for that, particularly Americans in their sense of exceptionalism. Um, <laughs> it's going to be really painful and hurt as we are displaced or dethroned out of that position in our own minds. And so I think there's going to be a lot of pain along that way. So that's not in this book. This book is just capturing what's going away. But my point is that it's going away. There's a new culture being invented. The It's not your grandfather. It's not the Chinese grandfather's version of China. It's the young millennials who are making more Shenzhen, which has 12 million people, bigger than New York City. None of those 12 million people were born in Shenzhen. None of them. 20 years ago, it was a fishing village. They were all immigrants to the city. It's a brand new, spanking brand new city with an opera house and everything else. So it's new. It's the youngest, hippest city in the world, just to give one example. That's the culture that's coming. That's the future. That's not in this book. This book is what is being left behind. I hope it can serve as a catalog of possible alternatives to what we're making as we make this new future. And I don't know of any other book like it. It's 9,000 images. It's crazy. It's awesome. I have all the photo books in the world and there is nothing at all like it. That I can guarantee you. I don't think there's ever be anything printed again like it because it's printed on paper, which is also not going to be around. The books will be around forever, but printing will continue to get more expensive. So uh, thank you for having me be able to rant about this. Thank you for asking great questions with what humans should be doing. And I really appreciate this uh, opportunity to share my love for Asia. Excellent. Yeah, Kevin, thanks for being back on the show. And sure. best of luck finding your thousand true fans to support this book. I don't think you're going to have any trouble. Yes, that's on the Kickstarter. I was looking for a thousand true fans and I have found my thousand true fans and I'm trying to price the book so that more, as many fans as possible can get a hold of it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon. <laughs>